Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and I invite you to experience Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, the podcast. Along with an audio drama of my adoption story, you will hear from other adoptees from all walks of life who said yes to a conversation with me about their journey for the purpose of encouraging members of the community. A special thank you to Damon Davis, host of the podcast, Who Am I Really? He played a major role in helping me to launch my podcast in March of this year. If you find value in at least one episode of Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, please share the podcast with someone today. Also, take the time to like and subscribe so others can find it wherever they listen to podcasts for free. In this episode, you will hear from the lovely Nancy McCaughey. She is a certified career and executive coach, courage, and renewal retreat facilitator and speaker. After a successful 30-year sales and marketing career in corporate and nonprofit sectors, she founded her coaching company in 2003. She provides transformational career and transition coaching services for seasoned professionals who are at a crossroads and want to figure out what's next in their life and career, how to intentionally live their purpose, and become a more authentic leader. I met Nancy in the Adoptive Voices writing group created by Sarah Easterly this year and thought she had been writing for years. It turns out that she has been writing for only a short time. She is a strong writer with her words. As a late discovery adoptee, Nancy's journey is filled with interesting synchronicities that are beyond fascinating to both of us. Her uplifting energy and warmth within the community inspired me to ask her to be a guest. It gives me joy to hear her speak. It's now time for you to hear her speak. I introduce to you, Nancy. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Jennifer. Oh, I'm so glad you agreed to have this conversation with me. You know, we recently met through the Adoptive Voices writing group, and I'm just so impressed with your writing. You've been doing it for a long time. Oh, thank you. Actually, you know, it's just been the past two years. I never considered myself a writer. I made a decision two years ago to start and write a memoir about my adoption, but yeah, it's fairly new to me. You're I, kidding. I feel You're like so, a beginner. You're good at it. I thought you had been at it for a while. No, thank you. How thank do you, you like the group? I love it. It has been the perfect match. Mm. Um, I Since I started wanting to write the memoir, I enrolled in a number of writing groups and writing classes. Our group particularly just hits it all because it's about the craft of writing but it's also about and primarily about the adoptive voices and giving ourselves a place where we can really tell our stories and that just didn't exist before so thank you and sarah and ridge and alice for that because it was a brilliant idea yeah sarah really recognized the need and it's just been amazing in putting it together, and I'm honored that she asked me to be a part of it. I 
so enjoy it every week. And so meeting you through that group has led me to want to talk about your story and for you to share it with me. I, I would be happy to. So I am what we call a late discovery adoptee, which I didn't know until two years ago. There was a label for what I had experienced in 1991. So kind of to give you some background of before the events when I found out I was adopted, I'll tell you just a little bit about my life before. So I kind of feel like I've, I've lived two lives, the life before finding out and the, the life since. Started out born in Chicago, fellow Chicagoan. Yes. Jennifer. Yes. Um, go Chicago. And um, it was 1953. So I'm 67 now. I was born in Chicago at a hospital, Illinois Central Hospital on the south side. And then before I turned one, my parents moved to Park Ridge. It was it's a northern northwestern suburb of Chicago. I was raised there with my mother and father and one brother who's five years older than me. Because he was five years older, he was always he was never really in the school where I was attending, except for grade school. I think we were both there. So in some ways I felt like I was raised like an only child. And I was the youngest of the two of us, so I was kind of the baby and and I felt my mother was so incredibly loving and and she smothered me, if anything. She was overprotective. So that part I kind of resisted as I got older, but enjoyed growing up. But a big part of my growing up was impacted by the death of my father. I was eight years old and he died uh, from a heart attack at work. It was devastating. And it was something that happened at a at a stage for a young girl i think where you know you're you're very close to your father or you know at least in my case i was he worked a lot so i was closer to my mom in the sense she was home stay-at-home mom and she was always there and but my father and i had a special relationship and i don't have a lot of memories of him so that part's sad to me i needed to be the grown-up girl you know and um I remember distinctly telling myself, I need to stay out of the adult's way. And I didn't, I, I didn't go to my father's funeral. So I didn't have that closure, which actually became really important when I found out I was adopted. Didn't have that closure. We, you know, it was the 50s and 60s. And so my mom being so thrown off by this loss basically became the single parent that she didn't expect. They wanted a family of six kids and they only had the two of us. She just basically soldiered on. It's kind of hard to explain how a child is impacted by the loss of a parent. But I remember distinctly feeling like I needed to be grown up like the other adults around me. Mm-hmm. So I didn't feel like I wanted to get in my mother's way. In my child's mind, I said, I can't go to the funeral. I will be in the way. Mm. And that was just kind of a, I don't know, it, was, it doesn't make sense now, but it did in my eight-year-old mind. But the result of that was that I didn't have closure. Mm-hmm. So that really stayed with me. And our family, I think part of the, the times, the 50s and the 60s, people, uh, generally speaking, they tried to they didn't tell their problems to other people maybe it was a midwest thing 
it, it was one of those situations where my mother said, people don't want to be around sad people. So we have to not be sad so that people will want to be with us because we need to keep our friends. Mm. So we didn't talk about my dad. I have very little memory of him. Uh, what I have is really wonderful, but we didn't continue to keep him alive in our in our minds in our lives. So we went on from there. Was there? And did my, you have pictures yeah. of him? Like we did. We had one picture of him. Uh, very interesting that she brought that up, Jennifer, because he was leaning against his file cabinet at work. He was a CPA and worked at a, a manufacturing company, and so he. You know, it was one of those kind of typical businessman leaning against the file cabinet and smiling into the camera. And it's a lovely picture of him. And ironically, that sat on our radiator in our home. We had a Tudor house, which becomes actually a character in my memoir because it was the house that I lived in for my whole life until I left for college. So anyway, it sat on the radiator and next to it was a picture of my brother and his graduation picture. And they were both eight by tens, sat on the radiator together, and they looked like twins. My brother and my father looked totally alike. Mm. And I didn't look like either of them. In retrospect, that was a clue. But I remember being aware of it. Mm -hmm. But I told myself, no, I, I look like my mom. So everything's okay. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah. But those are kind of the things that you look back on now and say, oh, my gosh, I did sense it, but mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't act on it. So anyway, that was eight years old. Now fast forward, I've gone to college, I've gotten married, moved to Hawaii, had a, uh, my son, my only son, with my first husband, we went through a divorce, I moved to San Francisco, and I remarried again. In 1991, I was 37 at the time, I had missed my 10th high school reunion, but my 20th high school reunion was coming up and I got the invitation. I was in a second marriage that wasn't going well and I was feeling a real need to kind of reconnect with my old self. Went back for the high school reunion and ironically, my best friend growing up, her name was Liz. Uh, we shared the same birthday and our parents were very good friends and we lived two blocks from each other. Her parents had moved away to North Carolina after she graduated from college. She went on to Atlanta and I went to Hawaii. So we had lost touch with each other. And she got the 20th invitation and she wanted to go. So she called me and said, are you thinking about going? And if so, can I stay with you? Because I don't have a place to stay now. So I said, absolutely. And it would be fun, you know, and so it was going to be a very quick trip home for this 20th high school reunion. The very first night, we had a, a gathering at the Snuggery in Edison Park, which was just next door to Park Ridge. It was in a kind of a restaurant sports bar. And so we, we went to this pre-reunion party and thought, okay, this will kind of break the ice. of You know how it is. You haven't seen anybody for 20 years. It's like, oh, my gosh. What's it going to be like? Right. So I wasn't sure if I this was a good idea or not, but I was hoping it would be. So it was great. We were seeing old friends, recognizing a lot of them. Some we didn't recognize, but we were sticking together during the whole reunion. Liz asked me to go to the bathroom. She, she said, 
come on, let's take a bath, bathroom break. And so we went and fixed our hair and checked our lipstick and as girls do and kind of getting away from the party. And we were talking about different people that we had seen in, in the other room. So she said, before we go back into the party, can we talk about something? So when we left the bathroom, she pulled me into an area of the bar that was closed off to the, to the rest of the party. And she said, Nance, I, I wanted to ask you something. I've been wanting to ask you for some time, but haven't because I was hoping we could be in person with each other. And I said, sure, what, what is it? And she said, well, I was wondering how you felt when you found out. And I looked at her. I had no idea what she was talking about. And I said, found out about what? And she said, well, when you found out you were adopted. Mm. And she's looking at me like, oh, no. You know, You're right. like, you know how did you not know? And then, oh, God, you don't know. Mm -hmm. That was the look on her face. And she could look on my face and say, you know, and see that I had no idea. And at first, Jennifer, my take on it was, you've got to have this mixed up. Mm -hmm. This is a story about somebody else, right. and not me. And it just couldn't be. And at 37, you know who you are, you've got your narrative rehearsed For really sure. well yeah yeah <laughs> so that it was such a shock and and disbelief I have to say before shock it was disbelief I really wanted it to be wrong did you say to her did you say that like you you, you must have me mixed up yes mm -hmm. I did mm -hmm. and she said no Nancy I my mom told me Wow. And so I, I thought maybe she's mixed up. Right. Something's got to be wrong here. Um, yeah. So anyway, it was pretty horrible. We didn't go back into the party. We just went out to the sidewalk uh, on the side of the restaurant and sat on the sidewalk and held each other and cried mm. till two in the morning. We talked about our lives. and You had nothing but questions. Know, I can only imagine. Nothing. Yeah. No. Just flooded me. Mm. So the thing was, is that we went through the rest of the weekend. We verified with her mother the next morning by phone. And she did confirm that my mother told her that I was adopted from the very time that I was young. Mm. And, but she didn't know why she didn't tell me. Mm -hmm. So I tried to avoid my mom that whole weekend because I just knew that if I saw her and talked to her for any length of time, I was going to blurt something out or I was going to, you know, break down. And I just had to make sense of it. So I made it through the weekend, left, went back to San Francisco. And then the next five months were unbelievable. I, was, I first felt grief that I've never felt before, or I thought I had never felt before. And it felt like the pain was so great that my stomach felt like it was open. It, you know, when they say gut wrenching grief. Mm -hmm. That's what it felt like. And, and it hurt. It just hurt all the time. And I couldn't explain it. I didn't know why it was happening. I mean, I, I knew I was so sad about it, but I just almost began to wonder if something was wrong with me. And I couldn't stop crying. I mean, I'd, <laughs> I'd cry for no reason. You know, I'd, I wouldn't even be thinking about it. And I'd start crying. It sounds like you weren't angry, though. Were you angry? No, no, no. Okay. No, I was in shock and I was also, I could not understand how my mother could not have told me because we were so close. Mm -hmm. So if anything, I was just deeply sad. Yeah. And when you, 
When you lose your identity in that moment, I mean, that's what is different about a late discovery adoptee. It's not only that you've lost your identity, but you've lost your parents, your birth parents, all in one fell swoop. You've lost your identity. You don't know if you're ever going to know who you are. You've really lost trust of the people you trust the most in the world. You know, or at least in my case, that was that was the situation. Mm -hmm. My mother and I were like sisters. Mm. So that's what deeply hurt. But I needed to I needed to decide what I was going to do. And at 37, I think, you know, I was a mom. I have a mom, had a mom at that time. And I had a mother-in-law in my previous marriage. I, I didn't need a mother. So I also was trying to figure out what do I need? And so that was another big thing that kind of took me time. There was no way to research anything. There were no DNA tests. I really didn't know how I was ever going to find if I did want to search. So the decision to search was a big one for me. And bottom line is I finally decided to tell my mother because she was coming out for my 38th birthday to visit. And I thought, we'll be in person and I can tell her then. So I did. It was a big deal. Wrote her a letter, told her I, I found out at the reunion I loved her. Nothing's changed my love for her. You know, tell me why, please. <laughs> you know, I I need to know. I need to understand. So she and, didn't know that yeah. you knew. Like no. her friend didn't call and tell her that you now knew. Oh, no. No. Okay. Everybody was <laughs> leaving that up to us. <laughs> right, right. And, and I wasn't going to talk to her about it. I didn't know anybody who was adopted that I was aware of. Mm -hmm. I, there were no books at that time that really explained what he, what happens when you find out as an adult. Mm -hmm. There was all these books about how to tell your child when they're four years old. That didn't happen to me. That ship had sailed. Mm -hmm. So I really didn't have any resources. And there weren't adoptee competent therapists like there are now. And that was a really big one because I actually called my doctor for a referral. Actually, my husband's doctor. And I, I was in between insurance plans, so I didn't have a doctor. And I asked him for a referral to a psychologist or a therapist or a counselor, whatever you wanted to call them. And he said, what's the big deal? <laughs> and I'm going, it's a big deal. I don't know if I want it, you know, if I can tell my brother that I'm adopted. If I'm the secret that everybody has held for 37 years, you know, who can I talk to? Mm-hmm. And so, and he didn't get it at all. Mm. So I, that was a, that was a real problem. And so I was, I was really going through this by myself. And finally, it, it just hit me. I have a choice here. And I remember very distinctly thinking this. I either am going to be broken open by this situation and broken apart forever, or I can be broken open and find my missing pieces, hopefully, and put my life back together and be whole for Chris. And that was my main motivation. I did not want to be affected for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. As I've come to learn, I mean, you're, you're affected from the moment it happens, you're impacted, but, but I needed to know that I was going to be able to come to an understanding and a reconciliation on this. Anyway, that was my decision. So I, I told my mom, she looked at me and she took my hand and she said, what do you want to know? And it was a moment that was just unbelievable. I said, well, I, I need to know why. 
Mm-hmm. And she said, because your father and I had planned to tell you when you were 10. The reason she and my father decided 10 was because she was a school teacher before they got married. And in the 50s, it was such a stigma to be adopted mm-hmm. that she didn't want to have, you know, that kind of stigma or make me to feel, you know, make me feel different. Mm-hmm. They had planned to tell me when they thought that I would be old enough to understand. But then my father dropped out of a heart attack at when I was eight. So she didn't have the heart to tell me. And, you know, and I, in retrospect, I believe it was very much for me that she didn't want to give me another hurt, deep hurt mm-hmm. that early on. But at the same time, I think it was also for her. She was protecting herself in it and understandably. You know, she she wanted a big family and never got it. So I always knew that how much she wanted children and she had us and we were everything to her. You can understand why she didn't tell me. But at the same time, I said, Mom, (laughs) somewhere along the line, could you have told me? Mm -hmm. And she said, if you were having, you know, a good period in your life, I didn't want to ruin it. And if you were really having a hard time in your life, because I had gone through a divorce, having troubles in my second marriage, she said, I didn't want to add anything to your to your plate. And so that was it. She just felt like there was never the right time. No good time. Never was a good time. Yeah. No, but I would say to any adoptive parent, there's never a good time. The truth really needs to be told. And if it's told from the very beginning, it's it's something you grow up with. But if you wait to tell and it comes out in some other way, which with DNA testing now it's happening, there's just no secrets anymore. See, that's the it, thing. Yeah, like I, I don't think there's ever a good time if you just don't start it off in the beginning. Like because if you start it off as my parents did, age appropriate, there's it's it's somewhat seamless. Like, I don't ever remember, and I've heard other adoptees say they don't ever remember not knowing. And so to suggest that if there's going to be this time, that time I don't think ever really comes. And and if it does, it's still going to be this, like, this lapse in time when you didn't know that you have to deal yeah. with. Well, and then, you know, it's everything that you knew about yourself comes into question. To not know who we are and who we're connected to is a, I mean, I believe is stronger than anything. It, it's a fundamental human right to know that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a, the era in which adoptions were closed. So mine was privately arranged. There, there was no agency involved. And it was a closed adoption in Illinois, as you know. Um, Mm -hmm. After the 40s, I believe, they closed the records and sealed birth records. So you were given an amended birth certificate. So I had a birth certificate my whole life, but I thought it was real. And it was funny, Jennifer, I I got that out this morning, and I was looking at my birth certificate again. And the amended birth certificate at the bottom says, I hereby certify that the foregoing is a true and correct copy of the record of birth as made from the original certificate of birth for the child named therein. So it even, you know, and it's certified and it's sealed. And right. I mean, it has a seal on it. And it it's has official. Official, <laughs> right. 
and and here it's a lie, <laughs> right? You know, right. and you're given this, and so I equate it to like the witness protection program, which you would probably know about, but it <laughs> it's almost like you're given an alias to live out of, you know, like we're going to put you in this new town, we're going to take away all of your identity, we're going to give you a new one, and you're going to live out this new life. Mm-hmm. So it was a very strange experience. And of course, with no one to talk to, no adoptee support groups, no books to help me understand what I was experiencing, it really was, it was a journey. So fast forward, I start searching, but oh, this is another important part. My mother, my adoptive mother, saw the name of my birth mother on a file that she believes the nurse left open on a counter so she could see it. She said it was upside down, but I read it and I wrote down your mother's name. Mm. So in that conversation, she gave me my mother's maiden name. She was probably married by now. Mm-hmm. So she probably have a different name. It, it wasn't easy to find. And then another big piece of this that I've I've heard in so many adoptee stories since I've found out and since I've done my search and I've found my birth mother and, and now I've found my birth father is the role of synchronicity in our experiences. And it was like the heaven dropped all these angels onto my path. Once I decided that I was going to search, it was like doors opened that I couldn't have ever made this up. It was a situation where I had remet a an old friend from my school years who had moved out to Oakland, California, and he was a minister. And in the basement of his church, there was the Alma group, Alma Adoption Liberation Movement Association, I think. And so he said, Nancy, there's a search group that meets in the basement of of my church. Now, what are the chances of that? I mean, we hadn't seen each other for 20 years. And he's, you know, we're on the West Coast. This Alma group is meeting in his church. So that happened. Then, you know, my mother seeing my birth mother's name, that happened. I couldn't find my hospital because I knew where I was born. It was in my baby book. But when I went to call directory assistance, there was no listing for it. So I end up going to a doctor's appointment to a new doctor because my insurance plan changed. And it turns out that he was an OBGYN himself in California, and his father was an OBGYN on the south side of Chicago at Illinois Central Hospital. Now, I picked his name from a phone book. You know, I didn't know this about him at all. And in my first appointment with him, I found out that he, his father was an OBGYN. And I thought, oh, my God, he may have been the one to deliver me. Mm-hmm. It was so wild. So, I mean, all these things happen. And, and it was through that doctor that I found out Illinois Central Hospital had become Hyde Park Hospital. So I was able to write for my records, but they wouldn't give it to me. Bottom line is nobody would give me anything. I wrote for adoption files. I wrote for my birth certificate and I wrote for my medical records and nothing was working. So I was giving up. I was feeling sorry for myself. And I stayed home from work the day after Christmas, and I watched Sally Jesse Raphael. Do you remember her? I she had do. Red I glasses. remember that show. Yeah. I watched it, yes. Yeah. Now, I've given up. I think, you know, I'm never going to find my birth mother. And I watched the show, and Sally Jesse Raphael's producers found the father of a young girl who needed a bone marrow transplant. 
and she never knew her father and they found him and reunited him with her on the stage. Well, you can imagine, I was like a puddle of tears watching this, thinking, oh, how badly I wanted to reunite with my family and find the person that I was looking for. Basically, my ex-husband, he, he was not my ex at that time, said, Nancy, I think this is an omen. And I thought, how could it be an omen? I've done everything I can to find Donna, and I can't. And then I thought, there's one thing I had not done. My adoptive mother had given me a list of phone numbers of people by the same last name for her maiden name, so all the Gidleys in Chicago. And I had a list of Gidleys, but I had been looking in the south side of Chicago phone book. My mom got her list from the north side of Chicago. There are different directories in the city of Chicago. So she had different people listed, and it ended up being the first person on the list ended up being my uncle. It had been sitting in my closet for four months. And that's how these kind of searches and reunions go. Yeah. It's just bizarre. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can do everything that you think you're doing, you know, the correct steps to take. But then there's this other kind of more divine experience happening in the background. I mean, the timing was unbelievable. I had her phone number. The Alma counselor was so, she was another angel. She basically told me, Nancy, you can't call her tonight. It's too late. Call her in the morning. And this is what you need to say. You need to ask her questions to confirm it's her. But before you do that, say, you know, before we talk, could you just write down my phone number? Because I'm having problems with my phone breaking up. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure you can call me back if we get disconnected. So my birth mother had my phone number. So clever. That was so it clever. Was, yeah, it was, it was incredible. And it worked. I, it was like an algorithm. You yeah. Know, say this, and then if she says that, then right. say that. Right. So I had this thing so scripted. And I surrounded myself with photos of my adoptive family and my son. I just needed to do that to brace myself because I didn't know what that phone call was going to do. Mm -hmm. And another thing that was really critical is I determined I want to talk to my birth mother. I want to know what happened as much as I can find out. But I don't know if I want to have a relationship with her. I don't know what kind of person she is. She doesn't know she wants to have a relationship with me. So I really felt like I set a good, healthy boundary I'm not going to invade her life. I'm going to you know, try to have a conversation. And if we like each other, we'll move forward. If we don't, that's okay, too. And I think because I was 37, I could hold it that way. But it was pretty exciting when I heard her voice for the first time. So this is the best part. I said, you know, so Donna, after asking her several questions, I said, does September 28, 1953 mean anything to you? And she said, I didn't enter that contest. Mm. What? And then, then it hit me. She was not alone in the room. Right. She was signaling. She was sending a signal to me. Mm -hmm. And I, so I just blurted, <laughs> Donna, I'm your daughter. I just found out I was adopted this year. I want you to know that I've had a good life. I would love to talk with you and get to know you, but I'll never show up on your doorstep. You have a grandson who's 12 years old that I want you to know about. I mean, it was just like, 
I couldn't get it out fast wow, enough. Wow, you got and a I, lot out. Yeah, you can do yeah. <laughs> I said, and she's standing there with her husband in the room. Right. She's never told, right? right? So I said, would you call me back? She said, I will. Mm. And so she called me back two hours later. And again, we had, she sent her husband out for Chinese takeout food in the middle of a snowstorm <laughs> so that she could get him out of the house <laughs> so she could call me back. Wow. It was really funny. We laughed about it afterwards. She called me back and we had 15 minutes to talk, you know, 15, 20 minutes or something to talk. And she basically told me so many wonderful things. And she asked me if I had a bump on my nose and I have a little bump on the bridge of my nose. And I said, hmm. yes. I said, I've always hated that. She said, that's the French nose. All my children have it. Mm. So, yeah. So, you know, those those moments you never forget. And uh, it turned out that I had four half siblings. And so now I'm the oldest of five, mm. right? Instead of the youngest of two. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so it was pretty sweet. And then at the end, the hard part came. I said, I really want to know my health history. And, you know, can you tell me anything? And she said, Nancy, it's not good. So she had multiple sclerosis. She had diabetes. She had heart disease. And she had an alcohol problem. It was hard. It was hard to get all of that in a, you know, like almost with a fire hose. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had to take that part in. And so that's the other piece. You know, when you search, you need to be prepared for news that you're not going to want to know. You know, that would be hard for no to know. And Mm -hmm. um, but is important, you know, so that has changed my life because I thought I had my mother's my adoptive mother's history of difficulty with pregnancies. So I worried the whole time I was pregnant with my son because this, that happened before I knew my father dropped out of a heart attack at 45. Right. You know, and I had I had mitral valve prolapse. So I got some irregular heartbeats and I thought, oh my God, I might die of a heart attack. So, you, you bring know, it up was... a, I'm so sorry, but I, this yeah, popped no. in my head. You bring up a really good point that I don't think I had really thought too much about in, in as far as medical histories or adoptees not having them because typically we're thinking of what our birth families are having. But as an LDA, you're carrying, because you don't know you're adopted, you're carrying the idea that whatever's going on medically with your adoptive family is yours. And it's right. and it's not. So you're carrying something you don't need to be carrying. Right. And also you're filling out medical forms, you know, your history right. forms. And giving your doctor the wrong information. Exactly. I had never yeah. thought about that. It's really not good. You know, and a lot of this has changed now with open adoption, you know, and I'm so glad it has. But there are still a lot of people out there that are part of closed adoptions, closed states, you know, sealed records. There's a lot of people that don't know. Mm-hmm. And DNA testing is really bringing that out. That's become a major deal. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of discoveries being made. So I think this is something we've got to reconcile. We do. Yeah. So I, I met Donna. She agreed to meet with me. She wanted to tell her husband. She felt so relieved mm. of telling him after keeping it a secret for 37 years. And wow. my mother felt relief. You know, we could now all have an open, real relationship. She had told and, no uh, one? She told no one. 
she really had a hard time mm -hmm. as an adult. She was going to be an aspiring model. You know, she worked for CBS News in Chicago, and she was a secretary, and she modeled at night. And she came from a very poor family, and she was her siblings were all separated from her because her father died when he was 45. That was another synchronicity that she also had lost her father mm. uh, of a heart attack at the same age as my father. I got to know her and we saw each other every time I could get to Chicago. So, and then I met my half siblings. So all of that was really good. One I'm particularly close to and felt like I'd known my whole life. And her name is Liz. Uh, she's just an absolute love. And her husband, Michael is terrific. So we're very good friends. And we had this relationship for 12 years, and then both my mothers passed the same year. Mm. Both of them were hospitalized, and I couldn't see my birth mother because she had an infection that I couldn't bring to my birth to my adoptive mother. Mm -hmm. um, my adoptive mother died first. It was another hardest day of my life. And then my birth mother, nine months later, ironically, 10 months later, passed. And I was able to be with both of them for their moments when they passed away. And mm. I, I can't tell you, it was the greatest gift. It's no um, wonder it that you do the work that you do. You know, I had, yes. had an opportunity to look at your beautiful website and I just got inspired. Just everything I was mm. reading. And so you have been in some really dark places uh, with, with when it comes to loss. And it is Brene Brown, I believe, that talks about what empathy really is, is to be mm -hmm. able to go to that dark place with someone else and just kind of be with them. Well, you know, you're absolutely right. And it has informed my, my work of coaching people in midlife career transition, because that's the stage in life where we ask ourselves again, who am I? Mm -hmm. You know, what, why am I here? What do I want my life to be about for the second half of life? And I had to ask all those questions in a very real way. And I had my own career transitions too. But I think it is through the profound losses that I've had, that I can have that empathy and compassion. And I grew because of this. And mm -hmm. that's the piece. If I can give hope to any of your listeners, we have the opportunity to grow in ways that we couldn't grow without this experience right. of being adopted. Right. I agree so, with that. Yeah. Yeah. So it, to me, it's been one of the, not the best things that have happened in my life. I mean, it's hard to put in that term, but I would not be the person I am today without it. And I also think, I couldn't have written my book before now because I needed that time of growth that it, it gave me to be able to make sense of it, to mm -hmm. make meaning from it. And you know, that's what, that's what really makes a memoir, the meaning of it, that common human experience. So um, mm -hmm. whatever breaks us open in life, I think we are faced with asking ourselves again, what, what's really important. What, what meaning do I want to make from this? And is it going to be something that disempowers me or empowers me? There it is. Um, yeah. I'm always asking, yeah. what do you choose? <laughs> do you choose to be empowered or disempowered? And, and then if you take yeah. it to the next level, once you work on you, can you then help 
someone else. Like that's that's it. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And, you know, it, every story is different. And I have complete respect for that. Mine was, you know, my adoptive family was really a wonderful, um, very privileged life in Park Ridge. All of us have our things in life that that are hard difficulties and tribulations. And it's just going to happen because we're human. Mm-hmm. So I think our stories are different, but they're also very much the same. And I think that's why in Adoptive Voices, we can relate to each person that we hear reading their work, because we can we can understand how they feel, however they feel. So it, it's wonderful to have that kind of support. And I'll just give you the end of the story. So I gave up on thinking that I would ever find my birth father. My birth mother never remembered. She told me at the beginning, she didn't remember who he was or what happened because she had blocked it out of her memory. Mm. But in 1998, she remembered Mm. and it it came back to her. She called me and she said, Nancy, I, I have memories have come back to me. I, I didn't know if I could trust the memories, Mm -hmm. but she told me his name was Ricky. She said she met him on the railroad because she was taking the commuter train into downtown Chicago and he worked as a train conductor. And so she said, and he went into the military and she said, Nancy, I never told him that I was pregnant with you. But if you find him, I want you to tell him that you found me. And so so she told me that he went into the military and then she told me he was Armenian and Irish. She said his he loved his mother and his mother would cry every time she heard Danny voice. So she thought his mother was Irish. Go figure. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people cry at Danny Boy. <laughs> right, right. I've heard that. It doesn't make you Irish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's all I had to go on. So go find a Ricky in Chicago. I mean, it was impossible. I even knew the train stop where she got on at 71st and Jeffrey. Mm. So I I tried, but without a last name, I I really couldn't get anywhere. So long story short, I start to write my memoir and my half-sister on my mother's side said, Nancy, this is kind of in my book. This will be on my book, so I'll keep this part of surprise of how it happened. But basically, she said, take the Ancestry.com test. I'd taken 23andMe, but I hadn't taken Ancestry.com. And she said, I think you're going to get different results. So that's an important piece. And I did. I got a different connection. So I got my results. It said, your DNA results are in. And I opened it up. And there was the Bridge Monte tree that I was connected to. And it said I had a connection of a half of a full sibling. It was wrong, but it was wrong in a good way. It said I was connected to a full sibling and I didn't recognize her name. And I opened up the tree and she had posted a picture of our father. And so I'm 65 years old. And I'm looking at my father smiling at me in a tuxedo with a boutonniere. And it was like, hey, kid, what took you so long? <laughs> <laughs> it was, I can't tell you. I mean, I'm, I'm smiling from ear to ear right now as I'm telling you this because mm-hmm. it was so joyful. It was, it had been 65 years since this had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to tell you, Jennifer, I woke up this morning and realized this is my 30th anniversary of finding out I was adopted. I've never thought about it that way. 
So I'm going to celebrate July 26 when I found out I was adopted. That's going to be my my anniversary date. Mm. And um, that was pretty big. So I found out I had two half-sisters and a half-brother who was deceased, but my half-sisters were still alive. And so now I found out I was the oldest of eight instead of the youngest of two. Isn't <laughs> so, that something? Yeah, it's bizarre. Bizarre. But um, I have developed really great relationships with my two sisters, and one lives just in Portland. I'm in Seattle, and so she's coming up tonight for a visit. And we talk probably a couple times a week. And and my brother has been so wonderful. He He said from the very beginning... When I told him I found out, he said, Nancy, it, it never made a difference. It just never made a difference. That's why I didn't tell you. And, so he knew. Um, he knew my whole life. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. But, you know, I take that as he loved me that much that yeah. he didn't want to be the one to tell me and hurt me. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, and what a burden for him mm-hmm. to have had to keep that secret in our family. I don't even know if it was ever discussed, don't tell your daughter, your sister, mm-hmm. but it was just kind of an unspoken thing. So he never, you all haven't had an opportunity to talk about when he learned of it. Yes, we have. When I started to write the memoir, I said, when did you know? Because mom always said after everything was out in the open, she said, he came to pick me up at the hospital with them, with my parents. And he's known his, my whole life that I was adopted. I don't know if I picked you up at the hospital, but no, I didn't know you were adopted until I found the adoption papers under mom and dad's bed. Oh, wow. And I said, when was that? And he said, oh, probably, I don't know, I was like 10 or something around that age. Oh, you know my how goodness. boys are curious. Yeah, yeah. and he held it. Oh, he my goodness. It. I do yeah. think that's love. I would choose to look at it like that, too. It's kind of making me emotional right now. I know. I know. He's been so special, and he's always been there for me. Mm. You're making me emotional now, too. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just picturing a 10-year-old boy, yeah, yeah, like learning that. Uh, Because for him, that was something he had to process, too. And then, yeah, in such a way to um, protect you. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But after my dad died, right? That was, yeah, yeah. He probably even became even more protective. I I could see that, yeah. you know. I've like I can see having listened to some other LDAs share their story. Yours feels a little different with the losses that were going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like like how do we? Yeah, how do we do this? Like we don't want her to have to carry anything else, right? Yeah, you know. Of course, I agree strongly with parents telling child that's adopted that they're adopted yes. soon, like yes. like right away. Cause, and that's based on me and how it makes me feel like I've never not known. And I mm-hmm. know how that feels. It feels good. And I've talked to other adoptees who totally agree. But then when you talk to people who were told it's 7 or 10 or 12, they, they had to really kind of wrestle with that. Oh, this is what I wanted to say earlier. The thing about not telling is that you don't know how it's going to come out. Like, you don't know. Like, your friend is the one that told you when you all were at the reunion. Like, there's no way to predict how that's going to come out. Uh, And do you want it to come out any kind of way? Like, no, you want it to be, as an adoptive parent, you want it to be a certain, you want it to be you. Yes. 
It, it really needs to be the adoptive yeah. parents. Trust is based in truth. Yes. And, and what I said to my mom is, how could I handle it if I didn't know the truth of it? Mm-hmm. So by not telling me the truth, you kind of put me in a disempowered position that I couldn't know how to handle it. I, I wouldn't be able to handle it. Right. You know, right. so part of this was me finding my truth. Yeah. And and I would have much rather have heard it from her than from anyone else. But thank God my friend told me, because if not, it was in my mother's lockbox with my birth mother's name. Mm. And so I would have found out when my adoptive mother passed that there was a name of a woman. <laughs> and You'd be like, who is I wouldn't the... have. Yeah. Who yeah, is who this? this? <laughs> you know? <laughs> or, you know, I don't know what she said. You're, you know, this is your birth mother, but she had her name written down in her lockbox, and that would have been devastating. I don't know if I could have recovered from that. Mm-hmm. Um, the way it happened for me, I was so grateful that it did happen when I was old enough to be able to, you know, or still with time enough to be able to have a relationship with my birth mother right. and my adoptive mother. And they did look like sisters. Mm. My um, adoptive mother's OBGYN had helped her with her babies in delivery, said, I'm going to find you a little girl. And when she did, she told my mom, the two of you could have been sisters. So maybe that's why I thought I looked like my, yeah, I looked like my mom. So I didn't question that. You don't think they knew each other, though? No, I don't think so. But, you know... There was a Park Ridge school for girls, and my birth mother lived there when she was separated from her siblings and her father died. So she was in the town that I grew up in. She was living 15 minutes away from me. She was in Glencoe, and I was in Park Ridge. We were so kind of in the area with each other. (laughs) Yeah. I I call it it crossing paths. Yeah. Yes. When I was in search mode, I'd look at everyone and say, you know, are you my mother? Are you my father? Are yeah. you my sibling? Mm-hmm. You know, it's really wonderful to know. Yeah. So that's my story. Well, I just and want to ask you, how did you feel seeing your original birth certificate for the first time? Yes. So, yes. So thank you for reminding me <laughs> of that. So <laughs> I wrote for my original birth certificate just because I wanted to have my birth certificate and I wanted my files to be complete. And so I didn't expect anything to be new to me because by that point I had found my birth mother and my birth father. And I just thought, oh, I'm just going to have it to, you know, fill in the blanks or to just be in my file. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that I opened up the envelope. My husband said, there's something here from Illinois Department of Public Health, vital statistics. I said, that's my birth certificate. And now I'm 65 years old, right? Mm -hmm. I'm opening up this birth certificate. And I see that my birth mother named me, Mm. Mary Gidley. And Mary was the name of her beloved sister. And Mary was the name of my birth father's beloved mother. Mm. So it was pretty, pretty emotional day. Yeah. Uh, She never told me that she had named me. And Mm, she never told you that. No. So there was something about hearing that it felt like it, it just felt like she was reaching from beyond and saying, I just want you to have this one last piece. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I did love you. I yes, named you. Yes. Um, so that's, that was the last piece of my puzzle. And I'm really glad that I have it. 
I'm so, so glad my, too. Yeah. And you get to you know <laughs> when you. I saw mine for the first time, it was uh-huh. very emotional, and mm-hmm. I, I remember seeing my birth mother's signature. I don't know, even when I think about it now, and I pulled it out yesterday to just look at it. Um, And I was like, wow, her signature, like that's her putting her name on there. You know, like it just it's it's just something really worth having. Can I tell you one more story? Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) it, It has to do with signatures. I told you that my birth mother was a model or wanted to be a model. Mm -hmm. She was for a little while. And she had multiple sclerosis. So her handwriting was shaky. Well, after I found my birth father, and I met my half sister, she said, Nancy, I have a cedar chest of our father's most prized possessions. And he had a lot of photos of women that he went out with, you know, when he was in high school and college, and after he got back from the Marines. So it turns out that she was going through the photos and she sent me in an email this subject line said I do believe and she found a picture of my mother in our father's cedar chest and it was a headshot of her as a model Mm. and she signed it Donna Lynn and he kept it all those years Mm. so that was it was like the proof it was like, you know, if, right. if original birth certificates or all the legalities of it wasn't proof enough, right. that was proof. Mm-hmm. It had been sitting in that cedar chest for whatever, 35 years or it was pretty amazing. Yeah, he kept that picture. Wow. Yeah. So we have that picture framed. My half sister framed it for me and gave it to me. Oh, nice. Yes. But it's her signature, and it's very shaky, and it says Donna Lynn mm-hmm. on it. So, yes, it's, I don't know. I think it's really important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, well, this has been a delight to talk with this you. This has and, been great, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to share in closing um, for adoptees or specifically LDAs? Well, I just think. One thing I would like to say is just take care of yourself. If you decide to search, make sure that you're taking care of yourself during the journey. It can be a wild roller coaster. And I think making sure that you get lots of support. I have a adoptee competent therapist that I saw during the time that I found my birth father. I'm part of a support group. I've been connecting onto the Adoption Network Cleveland and the Indiana Adoption Network that's now National Association of Adoptees and Parents, mm-hmm. I believe is the new name. Mm-hmm. So our adoptee writing group, whatever you need to do, there's so many resources now, you know, definitely online podcasts, blogs, anything you need to do to know that you're not alone. Yeah, I agree. There are so many resources because you aren't alone. And um, right. yeah, and, and these resources will help you make whatever choice is best for you right absolutely well thank you again for having this conversation with me it's just it has it's really Uh, been very nice oh jennifer thank you it's it's exciting and i hope to have the memoir in a year from now so it'll oh yeah yeah that's what i was going to ask you when do you foresee it so about a year from now maybe huh i think so oh that's wonderful that's what i'm aiming for I can't wait. I can't wait to read it. Thank you. It's been a delight, and I'll see you soon. 
Nancy's memoir about her late discovery adoption story, a journey of being broken open and healed by the truth, is nearing completion and expected to be available in 2022. Thank you, Nancy, for having a conversation with me. I feel like we're kindred spirits. Your willingness to share how your losses have enabled you to be so relatable to others is truly a part of living a purposeful and meaningful life. I smile whenever I think of you. Your brother lovingly protecting you over many years as his younger sibling is particularly moving to me in a beautiful way, even if I don't embrace adoptees not being told of their adoption sooner rather than later by their parents. Lastly, I plan to be the first in line to reserve a copy of your memoir once it's available. I know it will be a most enjoyable read and a wonderful addition to my collection of books written by adoptees. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash adopteeland. Your contribution allows me to present a weekly episode free of advertisement and is greatly appreciated to add a valuable resource to the adoption community.